You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 28, Krupp Steel Part 11, Alfred Krupp, or The Germans Are Being Treated Like N-Words. Today I'm recording from Nassau, and this episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. When Alfred Krupp left prison, his first day out sounded like the second release of Gucci Mane. Like, like, I'm literally not joking. His brother, his assistant Bertold Bites, and 300 employees all showed up to the prison with flowers and fur coats. The vehicle they picked to drive him away was a laundry truck, but that was a trick for the press, since a couple blocks away they had one of the first Porsche cars waiting for him. There was a press conference awaiting him, but he was still in convict clothes, so they pushed the press conference back a couple hours and took him to Landsberg's finest hotel. There, Alfred took a shower, shaved, and put on a silk shirt, white tie, and tailor-made suit. For breakfast, he had champagne. Reportedly, John J. McCloy was very annoyed by the champagne breakfast, which took place in full view of a full-court press conference. Then again, maybe that was the point. And like, I'm not trying to be flippant here, using African-American rap music to draw parallels, because this was a comparison that they were drawing themselves, as perverse as it sounds. At one point in this period, responding to news of some new expropriation of Krupp property, Alfred shouted, the Germans are being treated like N-words. Now obviously this is patently absurd on one level, but it did not stop the Germans from feeling that way and talking about it like that. Let's get into it. So if you'll recall, Alfred Krupp's family made him divorce a perfectly normal woman from a middle-class background. And they made him do that if he wanted to run the company, which he did. Now, I am sure that that causes all kinds of weird resentments and probably messes up your ability to have healthy relationships for the rest of your life. Because it sure did for Alfred Krupp. And on that note, right out of prison, Alfred Krupp basically married a con artist. And, I mean no disrespect, I'm all for women conning these types of men out of as much money as they can get. Like, secure the bag or whatever, but that's definitely what she was, a con artist. Her name was Vera Hassenfeld. She's been described as beautiful, petite, with a heart-shaped face, a stunning figure, a yearning for adventure, and no conspicuous inhibitions and she was one of the charter members of the jet set. Alfred Krupp was defenseless against such a woman. She could devour him, and she did. She came from an obscure background, and she was the type of woman who would, who was frequently introduced to highly eligible bachelors. If you catch my drift. She married a baron, then she married a motion picture man in Hollywood. She tried to break into pictures, but... But post-war America, at least Hollywood, was not very keen on making Germans into movie stars, so she didn't make much headway there. She worked as a sales girl in a department store in Hollywood, then she became a receptionist for a refugee doctor. Then she divorced her Hollywood man, married the doctor, then divorced the doctor, and returned to Germany with apparently a fair amount of alimony. 
As far as anyone can tell, Vera Hassenfeld picked Alfred Krupp out of the reports that she was getting from the refugees that her doctor was treating. Because, out of all of the places she chose to resettle in Germany, she landed right there in Alfred's orbit, where they fell in love quickly. They got married in 1952, after knowing each other just a few months. Just like with the champagne breakfast incident, Alfred's assistant Bertold Bites yet again organized the marriage with a baker's truck this time as their covert transportation. They bribed the mayor and they bought out the town's nicest inn for a secret reception and they drove away in a sports car for their honeymoon. At the wedding, Alfred gave Vera 15 tulips, a dozen roses, and the title to the most expensive Porsche on the market. Vera reportedly said that whatever the record showed, Alfred was the only man she had ever loved. Which I mean, for Alfred Krupp money, why not, right? Her married name, get this, was to be Frau Vera Hassenwelt von Longer Weisbar Nauer Krupp von Bullen und Halbach. They moved around a lot at first due to Alfred's weird legal limbo and constant battles to reclaim his property but eventually they settled down into a small, ultra-modern mansion on the property of Via Wegel. More on their marriage to come, I promise. So when the U.S. enforces their antitrust laws in the United States, the application is kind of haphazard, and it is certainly not as effective as it could be. The threat of one of these antitrust lawsuits is arguably more useful as a deterrent and it does work to an extent, but only up to a certain point. But when the United States decided to enact antitrust and decartelization in Germany, they were, I guess you could say, more gung-ho about it. By some estimates, up to 90% of all cartels in Germany would be decartelized, at least temporarily. In fact, as the Allies planned to decartelize Krupp, the Krupp directors were like, literally crying during a board meeting. In a hopeless monotone, Fritz von Bülow said, we might as well pull down via Wegel. Another director suggested that Alfred sell out. Never, Alfred Krupp shouted, I will not sell my people like cattle. Which is, you know, an interesting turn of phrase since he literally bought and sold people like cattle during the Holocaust. So all of this was happening during the era of Konrad Adenauer, who was Chancellor of West Germany from 1949 to 1963. He was more or less a strongman of more or less a dictatorship. And I'm sorry if you haven't heard that before. The Fuhrer Prinzip 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0, I guess, depending on when you want to start counting. Now, we talked about the economic boom that West Germany was experiencing in the last episode, but at the end of the day, unlike World War I, very little had actually been done against Germany and the German people. The Allies, apart from the USSR, hung the top Nazi leadership, and then they let the next tier off with honestly pretty short prison sentences. They issued some fines to lesser criminals, they expropriated property, and that was that. Nine out of every ten pieces of equipment that the Nazis stole was still in Germany by the time the Allies gave West Germany their sovereignty again. And 
at the juncture in which they give West Germany their sovereignty, that's more or less the time that the Allies stopped holding Nazis accountable. When Alfred Krupp was pardoned and allowed to run his company again, he was still subject to impending decartelization rulings that could have severely limited his powers. Along with decartelization, the Allied occupation specifically told Alfred Krupp not to buy into any mines to prevent the kind of vertical integration that Germany had before World War II. To that end, the Allied occupation's high commissioners, high commissioners required Alfred Krupp to make a personal guarantee that he would not buy into any mines, specifically coal. In a rare interview with the London Sunday Times, Alfred Krupp said, I have signed an undertaking not to produce coal and steel, and I stick to it. He said the same thing to Henry Luce, who published it, and Henry Luce believed him. At the time, there were people who did not believe Alfred Krupp, like Gordon Young at Reuters, who thought that the high commissioners had rather ingenuously accepted Alfred's word. It was worse than that. There was absolutely no legal mechanism to keep Alfred Krupp from doing this. It was literally only a verbal commitment. Now, when Alfred Krupp left prison, his personal fortune was estimated at $140 million, barring any secret hidden stashes of wealth, which, as we will see, were perhaps quite substantial. This period of time after getting out of prison is actually pretty crucial, and what Alfred Krupp did gives a good look into a very dark world. Now, for their honeymoon, Alfred Krupp, remember he's an aviator, he flew their private plane to London, and there they ate at the Savoy Grill. Now it's owned by Gordon Ramsay. And the next day, they flew to the Bahamas. They were guests on the Nassau estate of Axel Wenergren, who is a Swedish financier with ties to, get this, Friedrich Lundström, as well as Electrolux, the Camacho family of Mexico, Hermann Göring, the Duke of Windsor, Edward VIII, Northrop Grumman, IBM, Alweg, which, among other things, built Disney's monorail, and so on. Now get this. Wikipedia, now my sworn enemy, Wikipedia has the gall, has the gall, to have his page include a line saying, there proved to be little or no foundation to their suspicions that Venergren was a Nazi agent, which is absolutely false. Venergren was a Germanophile and a family friend to the Krupps. He had helped Gustav Krupp get around the Versailles Treaty back in the 1920s, as just one example. When the news came that Alfred was visiting Axel Venergren, the official explanation for their visit was that they were working together to open a German exhibit in Mexico City. What they were actually doing was working together with the Argentines and, you know, a certain Teutonic elements in Argentina that had, you know, recently resettled there, if you catch my drift. While Alfred Krupp was in Nassau visiting Venergren, they plotted with other people to get around decartelization, deindustrialization, and denazification plans for Germany, for West Germany. We don't have that much of a record on which Argentines and, you know, German Argentines 
were working there or what other topics were discussed. But let's just say we are going to get into this topic in future episodes. Via Wiggle, the giant gauche mansion, used to host monarchs, nobility, politicians, and industrialists from all over the world, right? After World War II, and in proportion to Krupp's diminished standing and power, why, no one really wanted to visit for quite some time. But by 1954, Via Wegel and the Krupp family entertained their first monarch since World War II. That's right. The first monarch to visit the Krupps was the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, his imperial majesty, Halle Selassie I, king of kings, lord of lords, and elect of God. That's right. Halle Selassie, the lion of Judah. His imperial majesty, the emperor of Ethiopia, was the first to cross the Krupp line and start rehabilitating the Krupp image, so to speak. From here on out, the Krupp family would entertain the world's most powerful men, just like before. Let's talk divorce, German style. Get it? Like divorce Italian style? The movie? Anyway. In 1956, Frau Vera Hassenfeld von Langer Weisbar Nauer Krupp von Bulland und Halbach filed for divorce. Leaving aside her obvious gold digging, they were kind of a bad match anyway. Alfred Krupp dated her in a weird interregnum period between his normal workaholic life. His normal workaholic life bored her. But the thing is, she wanted alimony and a fat settlement. Which is fair, I guess. But she was not content with what Alfred Krupp officially had. She wanted a slice of the hidden pie. Without Vera's divorce, we could have only speculated on this hidden pie. But because of the divorce, we know that it exists. To that end, Vera shined a light on Alfred's unlisted, unknown bank accounts, safe deposit boxes, and shell companies. She didn't even know all of them, but she knew enough to cause huge, huge problems for Alfred. I quote from William Manchester here, For the first time, the general public was given a glimpse of how far Krupp's tentacles had reached across continents through complex license deals, patent exchanges, investments, holding companies, and even marriage ties. After describing the size of the pie, they specified the dimensions of the piece she wanted, an immediate settlement of over $5 million, and yearly alimony of a quarter million dollars. The divorce was settled in three months, and they settled for an unspecified amount. From here on out, she was moderately famous for the rest of her life, and Alfred and the Krupp lawyers were always trying to get her to lay low. 
To that end, they bought her a 518-acre ranch about 25 miles west of Las Vegas. Lum of the Lum and Abner radio program had been using that same ranch as a hideaway. The estate's total cost about a million dollars for the crops. This ranch kept her out of the limelight for a while, but in 1959, she was robbed of a $275,000 diamond that Alfred had given her. The diamond was later recovered in New Jersey by federal agents. Seven men went to jail over the crime. The same diamond was later purchased by Richard Burton for Elizabeth Taylor. Later, in 1967, Vera tried to sell the estate to the United States government for $1,100,000. For some reason, Howard Hughes purchased the estate instead at an auction. I'm sure that there's more to that story. There's always more to the story when it comes to Howard Hughes, but I'm not sure what was up with it. I do hopefully plan to do Howard Hughes episodes, at this rate, probably years in the future. Maybe not. I'd like to get to it sooner, actually. But if and when I do, I will definitely revisit this. And for the rest of Alfred Krupp's miserable life, he would live alone with his chauffeur, cook, butler, housekeeper, valet, and his cameras and darkroom, his Porsches and BMWs, his favorite white horse whiskey, and his chain-smoking camel cigarettes, his high-end electronics, and a normal evening with Alfred Krupp was listening to Wagner alone while chain-smoking. Just guys being dudes. Actually, it sounds kind of cool. Not the being lonely part, but some of the other stuff. Anyway, by 1959, Alfred Krupp was the richest man in Europe again. How did his recovery happen so fast? Well, as many of you know, capital accumulates at faster rates, so to a certain degree, starting off with $140 million in a booming economy, you're already starting off way, way ahead, right? And when a country is destroyed and you own the companies needed to rebuild, why construction ends up being very profitable. But, for some of those, like, left-com, economic-base supremacists who insist that that conspiracy is not important to understanding the accumulation of capital. Alfred Krupp's story shows conspiracy is crucial, crucial to understanding what happened to the Krupp company from here on out. It's not just a normal 5% return or, you know, 10% return because it's a larger amount or whatever. So let's get into it. This is another reason why Alfred Krupp's fortune recovered so fast was the hidden wealth, which we touched on. The Krupp concern stashed so much hidden wealth away during World War II, especially when they realized they were losing the war, and they slowly reintegrated all that wealth back into the West German economy. And by they, I mean the Krupps and the Nazi diaspora, the Nazi underground, if you will. But there was also a new line of business that they got into, a new type of market, one that Hallie Selassie was the sign of, the expansion into the third world. After Hallie Selassie, Alfred Krupp entertained King Paul of Greece, Kaita of Mali, Badr of Yemen, Radha Krishnan of India, Amadu of Nigeria, Kubishek of Brazil, 
the Shah of Iran, and after Cameroon became a republic, Prince Hamadou Adijo. Eventually, leaders from over 140 countries would come to visit him. These were all customers he was pursuing, and they all came from the third world. None of the new Krupp salesmen in foreign countries were German. This was a new post-war world, so direct German supremacy was bad optics for business. And, more often than not, the salesmen were being sold on Krupp themselves. Like we discussed, half the time they were relatives of the monarchs or politicians of these countries. Even crazier, many of these third world representatives identified with the now defeated Germans. One said, we sympathize with the Germans because we had a common foe. For two centuries, my homeland was exploited by the English. In World War II, Krupp was fighting the imperialists. Now this is wild. Anti-imperialist national socialism against the Anglo-American oppressors. Insane people on Twitter would love this. It's crazy, right? And yet, at least to a ruling class of certain third world countries, this position makes sense to them. And of course, these sentiments relate to Krupp's saying, the Germans are being treated like N-words, right? Now, at Krupp headquarters in Essen, the Krupp concern had all kinds of charts and graphs, fact-finding, reports on literacy rates, aerial photographs of third world countries, and mineralogical reports of those countries, right? But what was their actual business? They would buy ore and raw materials, and what they would do is sell factories. They would make proposals for cost-plus construction and structure deals, and they would broker technicians, trade secrets, and training. They could also just sell the plans if you wanted to go it yourself. They called all of this consulting engineering, and they quickly expanded into infrastructure, selling excavating machinery, cement plants, suspension bridges, irrigation systems, hydraulic steel structures, and dams. Basically, they were doing what the Bechdel Company does also, and they were doing what William Stevenson also identified, quote, from every point of view as the most rewarding field for the investment of capital overseas, unquote. In some ways, Krupp became the Home Depot for developing nations, which sounds pretty good, right? Helping the third world develop, except I assume if you, dear listener, are listening to me, you might also imagine how this could also be a pretty malignant industry when you actually look into it. Like, for one thing, if a country's people are starving, it may not technically be ethical to write up a contract, like a cost-plus construction, to ensure a healthy profit, right? And Krupp was getting much more than a healthy profit in most of these cases. For another thing, the Soviets were doing the same work, but without the profit motive. They were Krupp's direct competitor in the field. By the 1960s, the British were worried about the competition. The British were worried about competition as exporters of construction machinery to the third world. The anti-Nazi German Norbert Mühlen wrote about these successes, saying, Where Hitler's soldiers had failed, Krupp's salesmen succeeded. A French magazine estimated that Krupp was, by the late 1950s, already Europe's fourth largest company, 
closing in behind Royal Dutch Petroleum, Unilever, and Monsmon. Alfred's personal fortune was estimated at $800 million. All of this success was ironic because one of the main arguments in defense of Alfred Krupp during his trial at Nuremberg was that Alfred Krupp was not a good businessman. Obviously, his record before and during World War II show him as a good businessman, but his performance after World War II makes that abundantly clear. The thing is, for the type of work that Krupp was getting into, it was all very capital-intensive. Yet, supposedly, he did not have excess capital. There is a huge disconnect in what the Krupp company was able to pull off and what they should have been able to pull off. I mean, this is literally about as capital-intensive of work as as it gets, right? Even though, yes, a lot of the third-world countries were paying for it, but still. Basically, the Krupp concern paid for it with a combination of access to hidden sources of capital via the Nazi diaspora, the Fourth Reich underground, the Bormann organization, if you will. And they also did outright fraud because Alfred Krupp had been buying up interest in coal mines pretty much since before he was even out of prison, but secretly. Now, what is some proof that the Krupps were in contact with the Nazi underground other than Alfred Krupp's trip to Nassau? Well, when Egypt was shopping around for builders of the Aswan Dam, which, as a reminder, one of the largest dams in the world, when they were shopping around, which, by the way, the Egyptians went with the Soviets because they were much cheaper, when they were shopping around, the Krupp company spent a lot of time and effort trying to court Nasser, the president of Egypt, right? When Alfred went to Egypt to try to promote some pro bono attempt to pull a red granite obelisk of Pharaoh Sesostris out of the Nile, the concept being to do this for free to get good PR to win the Ansoir Dam contract, Alfred Krupp was spotted and photographed with Otto Skorzeny. Now, you know, Kill Bill sirens should be going off in your head about Otto Skorzeny, but for those of you who are not Nazi Fourth Reich freaks like me, Otto Skorzeny was a lieutenant colonel in the SS, and he ran a number of he ran a number of wild special operations during World War II. Towards the end of World War II, he set up Operation Werewolf, which was going to be an underground resistance to the Allied occupation. It ended up functioning more as rat lines out of occupied Europe. Skorzeny was charged as a war criminal, but he had escaped to Spain. He ended up marrying the niece of Dr. Yalmar Schott, and Skorzeny went to work for the Egyptian government, training their state security. Skorzeny also worked in Argentina, and he was recruited by Mossad, in case you have any illusions left about Mossad for some reason. Later, Skorzeny set up a private security firm, one of the first modern private security firms that later become so infamous. Skorzeny also ran Despina spider network of the Nazi underground, and so on and so on, right? So, why was Alfred Krupp there meeting with Otto Skorzeny? Because, for at least seven years prior, Otto Skorzeny had been on the payroll as a liaison between 
Juan Perón, the president of Argentina, and the Krupp Company. I'm pretty sure that they also had off-the-books deals, too, because you don't keep Otto Scorzani on the payroll to just do normal liaison work, if you catch my drift. But that type of thing doesn't get put in writing. Now, if that sounds like slander, then maybe don't employ the Nazi special ops war criminal in the first place to avoid the appearance of evil, right? Now, one of Alfred's brothers, Harold Krupp, had been stuck in a Soviet gulag this whole time. He was there for 10 years, from 1945 to 1955. His original sentence would have had him staying in a gulag until 1975, as he was found guilty of war crimes on the Eastern Front. Ironically, one of the less guilty Krupps got the harshest punishment of the family. And to be sure, he was not innocent, right? Though, to be clear, some people insist, in fact, that Harold Krupp was innocent of the crime of war crimes on the Eastern Front, but I don't think he was innocent. When Harold Krupp was captured, the Soviets put him in a special camp with Wehrmacht generals and captured Nazi scientists. Eventually, Harold was put to work in an iron mining gulag, which was both ironic and fitting. Poetic justice, you might say. When Harold Krupp was released, he didn't know anything about West Germany. They barely heard any news in the gulag. Harold Krupp was trained as a lawyer, but his law degree was under Nazi Germany, so it was basically worthless. So, Harold Krupp lived off of his brother's wealth for the rest of his life. He suffered from PTSD and insomnia from the war and the gulag. Apparently, he was fond of reciting lines from Brecht's Three Penny Opera. And these are in the dark, and these are in the light. And you can see the ones in the light, those in the dark you can't see. One of Alfred's sisters married into German-Argentine shipping royalty. And you know how I feel about shipping magnates. I believe one of his other sisters married a top Nazi. I think that came up in the William Stevenson episode. Now, normally I would stop the episode around this time, but I'm so sick of the Krupps, so I will try to shorten the story and finally be done with these people. The Krupp concern started making fighter jets for West Germany, so they were fully back on their bullshit. This time, though, they let the United States buy into the company. Basically, they were buying off the only interest big enough to potentially stop them. The Krupp company also got into nuclear power. They ran a nuclear research plant subsidized by West Germany with involvement from the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. I might not have told the story as linearly as I would have liked, but basically Krupp refused to decartelize and they just didn't. They just didn't decartelize. And by resisting, a bunch of other German companies also refused to decartelize. And many of the formerly decartelized companies started cartelizing again. Adenauer, the chancellor, made moves to break them up, but Krupp fought back in the Atlantic Council and got his way. In a particularly psychological turn of phrase, when fighting to keep Krupp's steel factories, one Krupp executive said that Krupp, without steel, was like a woman without the lower part of her body, which is just insane. 
so I really wanted to finish with the Krupps this episode. I'm so sick of this family. Still, I think there's one more episode. Let me check. Yeah, one more episode. Still, let's see what lessons we can learn. So, Alfred Krupp had a real Gucci Mane first day out of prison. One of the many things showing the gulf between the rich and the poor. And in several ways, Alfred Krupp and the Germans kept drawing parallels between themselves and the plight of African Americans. Racistly referred to as N-words, right? Apart from the fact that they were both defeated and oppressed in some capacity, it's obviously a spurious and insane comparison. And yet, the leaders of various African nations, and across the third world, they drew the comparison themselves. Then we saw Alfred Krupp marrying a con woman, which is pretty cool. I don't have many opinions on it beyond lol, except that the woman, Vera Hassenfeld, blew up his spot and revealed the existence of a ton of hidden wealth, which is very, very interesting. Alfred Krupp went to Nassau and the Bahamas to broker deals to avoid decartelization, deindustrialization, and denazification and to bring stolen Nazi wealth back into Germany. Plotting to avoid deindustrialization, that's possibly defensible. Plotting to avoid decartelization, arguably not capital E evil, right? But plotting to avoid denazification? Pretty malignant. And plotting to bring stolen Nazi wealth back into Germany? Totally just evil. Then we saw how the Krupp company moved into building factories and infrastructure for the third world, or to rephrase it another way, exploiting the third world for profit. This won the Krupp company massive profits, while the Soviets did it for free, or, you know, less usuriously, right? Then we saw that Otto Skorzeny was on the Krupp company payroll, showing links to the spider network, the Nazi Fourth Reich underground, right? Between the Nassau connection and Skorzeny, it begs the question, how far do these ties go? I'm so done with this family. Next episode will be done, I swear. And on that note, of course I used the Arms of Krupp, the House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Tell someone about the show if you like it, and if you want more content, check me out on Patreon. Now I need to be on my way to Moscow. See you next week, and God bless. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie bait. And it keeps it up. Out of sight You know when that shark bite With its teeth big Scarlet billows Start to spread Fancy gloves though Where's old Maggie big So there's never Never a trace of red Now on the sidewalk huh? Ooh, Sunday morning, uh-huh Lies a body Just oozing life Ain't got someone sneaking 
round the corner Could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down Oh, that cement is just It's there for the way to dare I will get you ten old Mackies back in town Not to hear about Louis Miller He disappeared, babe After drawing out All his hard-earned cash And now Maggie spins Just like a shell Could it be our boys done something rash? Jenny Diver, oh, Suki Tawdry, look out to Miss Lottie Linya and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right day, not that Maggie's back in Yeah.